This bonus episode of The Kevin Roberts Show is a rebroadcast of the Federalist Radio Hour, where the Federalist political editor, John Daniel Davison, spoke with Kevin about his work at the Heritage Foundation, his experience as a D.C. outsider, and his vision for a better America. Enjoy. I happen to think, full disclosure, that the left really doesn't want to have a republic with the right, and that a lot of people on the right, and not just on the right, normal people who just want to live their lives we're not really that political just want to be left alone that's right um i think the left doesn't want to leave us alone Welcome to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm John Davidson, political editor at The Federalist, and I'm joined today by Kevin Roberts, CEO of the Texas Public Policy Foundation and incoming president of the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C. We're speaking today in Austin, Texas, from TPPF's offices, uh, where, full disclosure, I used to work uh, some years ago before Kevin came on board as CEO here. Kevin has been heading up the Texas Public Policy Foundation since 2016. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Kevin. John, thanks for having me. We're, we've become better friends over the last few years. See each other at church occasionally here. Big fan of your work. And of course, The Federalist. I've been looking forward to this interview. Very good. Well, the big news, uh, not just for you and your family, but for uh, the conservative movement, the Heritage Foundation is hard to think of a a bigger name in uh, the conservative movement than Heritage. They've been around for so long. They're kind of iconic. And their announcement that uh, you were going to be their new president um, pricked up a lot of ears, including mine. And I'll tell you why. And then I'll, I'll ask sure. for your response. Um, from my own perspective and from the perspective of a lot of people on the right, um, the Heritage Foundation has been something less than what we all hoped it would be, I would say, over the, the past uh, decade or so. Um, it has come in the minds of a lot of conservatives to sort of um, embody a kind of calcified, um, outdated, outmoded uh, way of approaching politics and policy that's very Washington centric, very inside the beltway, um, very maybe uh, unimaginative in, in policy solutions and uh, seemingly less and less relevant to what is happening in the country and the tectonic shifts that are taking place that have been taking place, especially since the rise of Donald Trump in 2016 uh, and everything that's happened since then. So for Heritage to announce that Kevin Roberts from Texas, before you were at TPPF, you were the president of Wyoming Catholic College. You're a historian by training uh, that this, you know, you couldn't be more of an outsider to to the to the D.C. kind of heritage uh, scene and brand that you were going to head up heritage. I, I think, and a lot of people think that it signals maybe a shift at heritage that maybe they realize some of the things that I'm talking about and that um, what the conservative movement needs and what America needs right now is outside the beltway thinking and uh, not to, to, you know, not this DC centric idea of what national 
the national policy debate should be. Uh, is that fair? And what's your reaction maybe to some of these criticisms of heritage that have been, you know, they're, you're no stranger to them. They've been sure. bouncing around for years. Sure. I, I've heard those and, and, and I'll address them momentarily. I'll just say that I have been clear during the whole process of interviewing with Heritage that I believe, and I, I say this as a longtime extended family member of Heritage, someone who as a teenager cut his teeth as a young conservative because of Heritage. So there's a lot of gratitude sure. that during the process, whomever they hired should be someone from the States. I, I said that actually sort of against my own interest. I, I love the job that I currently have. I will love being president of Heritage, too. But my point was, because I love Heritage so much and I want to see them flourish for their next 50 years, that the person who comes in to lead Heritage should be someone who understands those tectonic shifts in the country and in the movement, some of them having to do with President Trump and Trumpism generally. And I say that knowing that Heritage is fully capable of not only making those adaptations, but actually leading them. And so somewhat to my surprise, I, I don't say that to be falsely modest. I was chosen and, and, and I'm excited, not just for me. I mean, professionally, of course, it's, it's going to be the best job that I've ever had. And I've had three dream jobs. The one that I'm in, President of Wyoming Catholic and starting my own school on on uh, here the feast day of John Paul II, John Paul the Great Academy. If for those non-Catholic listeners, it's one of the weird things we do. But the, <laughs> the the point is, I'll get to have a fourth dream job, and I uh, to come full circle with that, John. I understand I represent the movement writ large. That I happen to have that privilege, and I don't want to let the movement down in the same way that I don't want to let my soon-to-be colleagues at Heritage down. I don't want to let my colleagues here at TPPF down. And I say that I handle pressure fine. Um, the, the point is, I think all of this is providential, not because Kevin has gotten the job, right. but because someone like Kevin has gotten the right. job at an organization that all of us understand is so crucial to the past and the future of America. You said that you told Heritage, whoever was chosen to lead uh, the organization needed to be from the States. Correct. Why did you say that? What do you mean by I that? I said that because as a historian, I understand that the philosophical, historical, intellectual roots of conservatism have always been outside wherever power centralized. I'm a Russell Kirkian at heart, who was a Burkean. And I, I say that not as labels, both would shun that, but to just Full disclosure, I'm an open book, transparent. What I mean by that is conservatism before it's anything political, before it's anything in policy, is doing our jobs well in, in our communities. That it really is, as you and I understand, what we call subsidiarity, that the, the lowest possible level of society should handle problems. And so it's decidedly unconservative for us to think in an almost knee-jerk reaction kind of way. That the way to fix this egregious problem we have with a radical leftist agenda all comes from D.C. In fact, the opposite is true. Almost every great policy solution in our country's history has originated in a state. And what I want to do is augment Heritage's understanding of that by bringing my experience there, empowering the people who are there and those whom we will hire and those whom we will hire back to articulate this positive vision for the country and for conservatism that rests in the belief that anything in D.C. 
anything in D.C. we must be skeptical of. And I can say that as a patriotic American, because our founders understood that. Every generation of patriots has understood that. Is there a risk that these views uh, and this emphasis on federalism and on states and and even more on, on local communities cuts against the grain in a place like Washington, D.C., not just with the left or Democrats, but with establishment Republicans, with uh, kind of institutional Republicans at places like you know Heritage and AEI. These aren't places that are known for uh, advocating federalism, right? Uh, arguably, a place like Cato is, is more known for advocating for, for federalism or a, a kind of you know, federalism. Uh, how do you, how do you propose maybe to shift that, that thinking or has that shift? Do you think that shift's already taken place in a lot of people's minds because of the centralization that we've seen uh, in DC, let's say over the last 15 years? Definitely the latter. If you look at all of the research of heritage of the last 10 years, when this, these tectonic shifts have become very clear to astute writers like you, they're completely in line with what I just said about federalism. I think what has happened is that, and there are a lot of dynamics at play, so I'll, I'll try not to be long-winded here. Di a lot of dynamics at the macro level. It's a long-form podcast. Oh, man, you, you, invited, you, <laughs> as you invited the wrong guy. You should not tell me that. The, the, the point is, the, I think the big dynamic is that we are in a post-institutional era. And so there is a skepticism about almost any institution, period. There is a skepticism about D.C. institutions generally, and there is some angst in the movement about heritage. My point is, if you actually look at the research, you look at the work that scholars at Heritage today mm -hmm. are working on, it has died in the wool federalism. And so what I see my job as is making sure that that message is getting out to the states. And perhaps because of where I'm coming from, there will be a credibility in my saying, you really do need to listen to this from heritage. It's what they've been saying all along. But because the, the institution of heritage has been caught in that tectonic shift, as all of ours have, maybe there needs to be a bigger emphasis on that external messaging. I'm a guy who loves dealing with internal culture, spending time with colleagues, getting to know them. I, I love making sure that everything is running well. But ultimately, I'm an outside guy. I want to spend time building coalitions. I want to spend time listening to people who disagree with heritage. I want to spend time listening to people who think we need to be doing things differently. Not because I think heritage at its core is, is wrong, but because any institution, especially of that size and of that age, can always be open to adaptation. Maybe you're the wrong person to ask this question to because you head a think tank in Austin, Texas, and you're going to head uh, the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C. But what role really do think tanks have in the political moment right now? What's their relevance? Mm -hmm. I understand their relevance in the past, yeah. but a lot of conservatives have come to this place where they kind of look back at the past. They, they look back at the last couple decades and they think that the conservative movement that was sort of directed by think tanks from a policy sure. perspective that was uh, heavily sort of institutionalized uh, and heavily D.C. focused was an utter failure. And, you know, I, I mentioned Trump earlier. Um, you know, Trump didn't 
you know, spring, you know, fully formed from the the soil of the United States in 2016. He was a symptom, not a cause of things that had been brewing for a long time. And so all that to say, what is the role that think think tanks should have today in the conservative movement? And, and how is it maybe different than it was in the past? Or is it not different? Sure. Great question. Look, I'm, I'm an academic fancy initials after my name uh, have led a think tank and will lead the greatest think tank here soon. So I may surprise people when I say in response to your question that I love the skepticism toward think tanks in your question. I like it because all organizations should constantly be pushed especially when they claim to be influential. Now, in the case of Texas public policy and heritage, it is true that we are influential. But to get to the heart of your question, John, about the future of think tanks, think tanks have to change how they do business. I mean, I've been blunt about that explicitly for several years, even before I have the job that I have now. In other words, while there is a role and it is important to be writing white papers, because that's the, the intellectual foundation for the policies that grow from that. In other words, President Trump, whom I admire greatly as a man and and as a political leader, would not have been able to do what he did without having those white papers, even though President Trump doesn't strike me as someone who's going to sit down at night and read them, not because he's a dummy, but because that's just not what an effective CEO does. The point is, if that's all think tanks are doing in the future, then they're going to be totally irrelevant. And there's going to be a total waste of money for donors to be investing in. The think tank that I've led in the last five and a half years has completely revolutionized how it does business. We still write white papers. We still bring top-notch academics. In fact, we've recruited a lot in the last two years. Those papers are important. But what's equally important is that you invest as a think tank in your communications department to help you understand how you take those ideas that are kind of esoteric and academic and disseminate them to a wider populace. And then the final thing that we've done here at TBPF and that Heritage is doing, but you're already developing an inkling we're going to be doing more of, is making sure that activists, grassroots, uh, just common people have at their fingertips the intellectual ammunition they need to tell our elected policymakers what they must do. Not, this is what we're asking you to do, what you must do. I don't mean that in, a, in an ugly way. That's not my style. It's, it's not heritages. It's not going to become ours. But in a way where the elected policymakers have no choice but to do what is right. If we achieve that in D.C. with the Heritage Foundation, this country is going to end or begin a golden era. We've been able to do that here at Texas Public Policy, which is not to overstate our influence, but I think you talk to anyone in this town, in this state, and you know, they will tell you, if TPPF says it's so, we might disagree with it, but we know that it's something we have to respond to. In a way, helps drive the conversation That's right. and, and controls the conversation from a policy perspective. That's right. There's a sense in which... And, and I've watched you do this at TPPF over the last five years or so that think tanks kind of have to become media organizations. That's really right. Um, you know, they, they have to do more than just produce white papers and that, that maybe sit on a shelf and nobody reads, That's right. uh, which is sort of the, the old model of a, of a think tank that it was a, a repository for academic knowledge that maybe some uh, committee staffers, you know, leafed, right. leafed through. Uh, uh, but it seems like, and you know, to Heritage's credit, they, do have a growing media presence mm-hmm. over the past few years uh, that I, ha- I do think has helped get their message out there more and more. Um, but there is still this, this uh, 
legacy image of heritage mm. as this DC focused thing. So I want to talk more about federalism and specifically about Texas. You've been at TPPF for five years now uh, about, mm-hmm. um, and Texas has always kind of been at the, at the heart of a lot of these tectonic shifts in American politics. Um, but it seems to be even more relevant now, whether you're talking about the border or uh, abortion or uh, election integrity, um, or just the, the, the economy and generally, you know, the, right. the Texas economy is 11th largest in the world. Um, w- what are the lessons uh, that you're going to bring to Washington, D.C., fr- specifically from Texas? And, and what, what is the, the relevance of uh, the place of Texas in the sort of political economy of America right now? Sure. Man, I love that question. The first part of it is the, about the lessons that every single one of those legislative victories you mentioned, and we did have a legislative victory with the border. I mean, it's, it remains a crisis because the Biden-Harris regime is, is evil. But the, the, the point is, every single one of those came by TPPF helping to build a coalition. And Heritage does that. So that's going to be an easy lesson to take there, but I'm going to really make sure that it's it's energized. And as I, I mentioned to one of my soon-to-be colleagues yesterday, I want to heritage is often called the mothership of our movement. I think that's true. I want to put rocket boosters on the mothership. That that's what we're doing. And the following is also true about heritage. It's certainly true about Texas public policy. That you don't worry as the head of the organization about taking credit. The scholars at Heritage don't run around saying, oh, that was ours. We get credit. Let the elected guys and gals do that. They have hard jobs. We pick on them, but they have hard jobs. And they love taking credit. And they love, and they need to. And if they're passing good bills, then they ought to. We want them reelected, right? And so, and, and the third thing is being optimistic. And I don't, I don't do hollow optimism. In fact, I'd rather hate it. But I'm really optimistic. I'm going to get to the second part of, of your question about the future of America, because what I see is that conservatives, libertarians, people who are center right, who don't know what label they want to use to describe themselves, all understand that Washington has failed us. Both political parties, or I should say the establishment of both political parties have failed us. You know why? Because they're drunk on power. And conservatives have always, always scrutinized that. We've always been very skeptical of that. And Texas is the great reminder of that. Maybe in the next hundred years, in addition to Texas, There will be other states who emerge that way. Texas has got this cultural bravado that I imagine non-Texans have discovered. I will have a little bit of that because it's just sort of how I operate. But the point is, D.C. has always been at its best in a policymaking way when folks from every state have said, no, we're we're, we're not doing it the way it's always been done. You're you're a member of the deep state. In fact, as, as a member of the deep state, we just don't believe the words that are coming out of your mouth. And facts are stubborn things. Those are just true. And at Heritage, we will be optimistic. We will be courageous. We will be tenacious. And perhaps it's that last quality, tenacity, that as an adopted Texan, I will bring to Heritage and exhibit every single day. On the question of federalism and, you know, uh, Texas bravado, as you mentioned, which I think a lot of people in D.C. just like... Just, just sets their teeth on it. It's edge. wonderful to see them cringe at it. <laughs> they really hate it. Uh, people in other states hate it too. Um, I won't comment about them. They're good people. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, 
you know, the idea that states are different and that life in states is and should be different, uh, it seems to me is something that has uh, maybe, maybe the only thing that has a chance of getting us out of the problem that we find ourselves in, which is that, you know, half the country thinks the other half are traitors and uh, don't want to share a country with them. Now, I happen to think, full disclosure, that the left really doesn't want to have a republic with the right, and that a lot of people on the right, and not just on the right, normal people who just want to live their lives, who are not really that political, just want to be left alone. That's right. Um, I think the left doesn't want to leave us alone. That's right. Um, so we, we, we keep circling around this idea of, of federalism. How do you get an authentic federalism, a, a substantive federalism, when so much of the policy making in the states, and this is something that we talked about a lot when I used to be at TPPF, right. and, and I think you guys uh, have continued to talk about this and, and engage us because it's a big problem, especially in, Texas, in a big state like Texas. How do you get an authentic, substantive federalism when so much policy is made in Washington and exported to the states in the form of federal funding that comes with strings attached? How do you break that euphemistically called cooperative federalism stranglehold over state policymakers? Great question. A lot of answers to that, but I'll limit myself to three. The, but let me say before even getting to that, I happen to agree with you that the left doesn't, the radical left at least, doesn't want to be in a republic with those of us on the right. And that's a huge problem culturally, socially. We see it when we go out to eat. You, you see it in the demise of formerly great institutions of civil society like the Rotary Club and Kiwanis, you know, it, different stops along my professional journey. I was always a member of one of those to, to meet people who thought a little bit differently, uh, knowing that I'm not going to change my beliefs, but I'm very happy to be friends with, with people who share or have other beliefs. Think about where I went to graduate school in history. But that is something that can change only from behavior of those of us who want to keep the republic. And that's why comportment to me is really important. That's why cheerfulness is really important to me. That's why I don't believe in, in especially those of us on the center right, shooting at one another, which has become really fashionable in the last year. That's, I understand it as a historian. That has happened before. That's not unprecedented. What is unprecedented to the heart of your, your framing is that a growing percentage of people on the left don't want to be in a republic with those of us on the right. And that's painful to think about. I can control what I can control. And what I can control is to the heart of your question about so-called cooperative federalism. The first thing that needs to happen on that spending is that that has to change. And that's why you can't forsake institutions like heritage, I would argue, institutions, especially heritage, being in D.C., because there's already great work happening by Heritage and the affiliated C4 Heritage Action for America to make sure that that spigot comes to a stop. That's that's the tallest order of tallest orders, because even many Republicans, perhaps most, are addicted to that. And so we, we as a center-right movement, have to create a situation, going back to a previous exchange we had, where it is not fashionable for them to do that. That means, to go down to the sidewalk level briefly, that those of us who are constituents, all of us, of course, are constituents of a U.S. House member, that we don't applaud them when they buy into pork barrel spending. We don't want XYZ Recreation Center built with federal money. We need to say, no, 
But the second thing is, and this is this is kind of coming full circle to your first question about my plans at Heritage. A lot of this is already happening, but again, I want to put rocket boosters on it. Heritage needs to be very present in state capitals, not to the demise of existing state-based organizations, but in a complementary way where we can bring in our muscle and help organizations like TPPF, help organizations like the Pelican Institute in Louisiana, which has got a tall order trying to reform my native state, which is almost too far gone. If Heritage can do that, and it's also remaining very present and influential in D.C. to begin to slow down that flow of money, I think we begin reforming this country. But the third thing is, we have to articulate a positive, persuasive vision for conservatism in the future so that anyone running for office, president, governor, U.S. senator, school board member, state legislator says, that's the America I want to be part of and we're going to build it. And the reason I get animated in saying that, John, is we've done that every time. Our backs have been against the wall in American history. I happen to believe that TPPF and Heritage are going to be at the vanguard of that. That is the future of conservatism. I don't want to belabor the point about federalism. You can. But I do want to ask you um, again about um, some of these trends. Some of the folks on the right, um, and I think they're wrong, but you, you hear this now, talk of national divorce. Right in some quarters of the right, that uh, if the left doesn't want to be in a republic with us, fine. We don't want to be in a republic with you. Um, and let's just figure out how to split. I, I don't, I think it's sort of uh, not realistic. It's fantastical. Um, yeah. I, I don't actually know what some of these people are talking about. Um, but it's the sentiment that, that I'm interested in. And it's a sentiment that concerns me. Uh, because I think it's loser talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it is uh, giving the left more credit than uh, it deserves. And assuming that the left, um, especially the radical left, represents more people than it does. So one of the things that we try to do at the Federalists is give a voice to people who the corporate media usually ignores. Right. Especially people who the corporate media despises. Right. Um, not only by giving you know ordinary people, uh, if they can write uh, a platform to to make their arguments, but by interviewing people that you know would never um, would never draw the interest right. uh, of the mainstream media, except for maybe their scorn, right? Yeah. Um, but on this question of national divorce and the kind of defeatist undertones to it. Uh, I like what, what you're saying about being optimistic and having a vision, mm-hmm. because it seems to me that the antidote to loser talk uh, is articulating a vision for America that that isn't maybe traditionally uh, Republican. Yeah, right. That's right. Um, because one of the problems with a traditionally Republican or establishment Republican vision of America is that it was too much focused on corporations. It was too much focused on, uh, you know, spending bills and and deficit spending and these really kind of abstract things that are important but uh, don't capture the imagination of ordinary people uh, and and may not uh, affect their lives in ways that that really kind of hit home that make them care right um so how do you go about uh communicating that from the perch of a institution that traditionally really 
was focused on these more macro 50,000 mm-hmm. foot level things about spending and tax policy and um, maybe fairly or unfairly was too associated with the chamber of commerce. Uh, you know, a lot of conservatives and normal people feel like corporations hate them mm-hmm. and, and that a lot of them are evil um, and that a lot of them hate America and have, you know, there's a, there's maybe some confusion as to why we should coddle these, the, these corporations anymore mm-hmm. or why we should court their favor or do them any favors. What's your response to that? Well, I'll start by saying that one of the biggest mistakes conservatives make is allowing radical leftists to live rent free in our heads. I just came out of the last class that I will teach here at TPPF called philosophy of freedom where we were, I was speaking with the interns about the Declaration of Independence, and we got into a policy conversation about critical race theory. And these are all college students, very bright college students. And I said, y'all do realize that critical race theory is the project of a very small group of people, almost all of whom are white college-educated elites who live on either coast. And there was a pause. And they said, we hadn't thought about that, but everyone who's called us an oppressor is a white college educated so-called elite. And I said, you need to remember very well off and very well off, very privileged. And I'm going to come back to that point in a minute, but to complete that one before moving on that you could see a change in their body language that, oh, this isn't 60% of people against us. This is like two or 3%. And, and it's, and it's meaningless. And so why do we accept their narrative framing? And it goes straight to the heart of your point. You can see, I mean, you want, to, you want the headline on what I'm going to do at Heritage? Articulate a positive vision for conservatism that Heritage and hopefully hundreds of other groups will participate in that most importantly helps to rejuvenate our belief in American society as a, as a result of that, we're going to have elected leaders that we can really believe in again. But the, the, the other point that I would make regarding the Chamber of Commerce stuff as it relates to heritage is I'm a guy who grew up in a blue collar town in a working class family who had to relocate twice because of the oil bust in the 1980s. And it was in the midst of that with great family drama that I realized the government is not my friend. And no radical leftist is my friend either. My friend is my community, my family, going back to being a Burkean and a Kirkian. And what's the good news that I can tell people who don't know Heritage as well is that it is not a Chamber of Commerce institution, especially now that the Chamber of Commerce has gone off the deep end because they've been bought off by woke corporations. And if you need any, you know, someone saying, well, Kevin, I'm still skeptical of that. Read a little bit about me, including explicit statements I've made about corporate America the last week. Those are not out of step with where heritage has been, but it goes back to the point that heritage, we at heritage need to tell the story a little bit better, right? Almost every organization can say that I can say that um, blaming myself here at TPPF, but let me, let me end with this before you, you move on, John, and say that I understand the sentiment that people have about hating more and more of corporate America because it's correct. So much of corporate America is an enemy to what we believe. And they, they kiss the ring of the woke radicals when they shouldn't. Those woke radicals by number are not a threat to them. 
Look at what, just to use a, a, a popular culture example, look at what in and out Burger of all companies did based in California. So we're, we're just not participating in this overwrought COVID nonsense. Guess what's happened at in and out Burger locations all over the country? You can't get a hamburger. That's the lesson, right? And that's the kind of way that conservative institutions like Heritage need to talk. We have to continue to fight the taxing and spending battles because there actually aren't many good institutions on the right doing that. It's that in addition to doing that great work, we have to be with the sheep, the sheep being people like me in Texas and Alaska and New Hampshire and Florida and Utah, every single state that has got to be the model for us. Since you brought up critical race theory, um, I want to shift um, as we sort of, you know, away from federalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, Are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> we are in Texas, so I had to spend some time on it. But, uh, you know, I want to ask you about this um, debate on the right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this sort of uh, debate that a few years ago was, you know, uh, maybe ridiculously characterized as sort of like Amariism versus Frenchism. Agree. Um, got distracted. I think the debate got distracted by the personalities of, of those two people. Agree fully. Somewhat. But there was a substance to it that remains very relevant. And we can we can kind of trace uh, really obvious fissures on the right um, by by looking at it. You know, the idea uh, and, and I have to say, I, I am very sympathetic to this idea that the right and conservatives can no longer pretend. And I think for many years, many people were pretending that we can just have this neutral liberal order and that um, that will be enough to safeguard the blessings of liberty to uh, uh but it will be enough to preserve the Republic and it'll be enough to preserve um, the American way of life. And it will be enough to preserve the little platoons in their independence. Um, uh, and it will be enough for families to be able to raise their children as they see fit. Um, that, that it was a kind of an illusion. Um, and uh, it turns out an appalling illusion. Yeah. Um, and that it's not enough to maintain this idea that we just need a neutral public square and that the you know drag queens have every right to go to the library and read uh, to little kids and expose them to inappropriate content and you know they have their uh, story hour and the conservative christians have their story hour and let the let the best story hour win right uh you know screw that right yep. uh that was never true uh, but a lot of the conservative movement bought into it, kind of the libertarian mm-hmm. Republican uh, uh, wing of the conservative movement. And uh, I think what part of the reason is that um, corporations were willing to donate to institutions uh, that that held that line um, because it was easier for them. Uh, to sort of write a check to an institution that was like, oh, you know, we're just, you know, we just want the neutral public square. We're not articulating a positive vision of the good. Yep. Uh, you know, uh, I think that uh, that's all over with now. Mm-hmm. And uh, and if if conservatism has a future, and if we ha- if we want to have sort of a fighting chance of of saving the republic, we we have to um, not just articulate a vision of the good, but propose policies that say, you know what. Um, there is something uh, that is good. Truth and falsehood are real and objective, and we can know what they are. 
uh, rejecting critical race theory that kind of posits you can't really know anything that's true right. um, and, and articulate uh, a vision of the public good um, that, uh, you know, reimposes some guardrails that we, right. we've lost over the past 60 years. Right. Yep. Um, you're a historian by training uh, and, and I have to say that your, your training in, in, in uh, history sort of infuses a lot of the work that you do. And mm -hmm. I've heard you, I've heard you speak before and, and uh, seem to know, know what you're talking about. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but from a historian's perspective, you know, how do you reclaim and, you know, you, you mentioned Russell Kirk uh, and Burke. How do you reclaim that that mantle because uh, for conservatism, because Russell Kirk would never have gotten on board with this idea that there's just this neutral public square. Uh, what, what, how do you how do you respond? You know, what are we supposed to do? Yeah, well, guess? well said. It's a it's, look, it's a huge problem. I, I don't want to be dismissive or or seem to be minimizing the extent of the problem, but it may not surprise you given my optimism. I think there's a solution. The headline I would write is that every policy that center-right folks articulate and advocate for needs to be oriented around the Burkean notion of little platoons. That, that gets us back to federalism, of course, but I won't go down that trail because we've covered it. What I mean by that is I'm going to start with education policy. Look, I'm a, I'm a proud product of public education. I'm a fifth-generation teacher. America's public education system has collapsed. It is not collapsing present tense. It has collapsed. A skeptic may say, oh, come on, Roberts, look at all the pretty buildings. That's exactly the point. All the pretty buildings. I can go on. I can go on a screed about that being a ridiculous problem in Texas. They're not even pretty. They're not even pretty. The, the, you know, the football fields are, you know, coming from a football fan. But, but, but the point is, what has collapsed is the education itself which if you get to the Latin root, as you know, is to lead someone to a higher understanding. That isn't happening in most schools. And there's no way that we're going to achieve the objective of all policies in, in, in every realm, sort of using as a, as a measure of success that we're empowering individuals to live in those platoons with all of the uh, requisite, all the obligations of living in a moral order. Look at the work of Robbie George, my good friend, Ryan Anderson. The goal should not be a neutral public square. The goal should be a public square in which there is an implicit under, there's an understanding that we are transmitting values from one generation to the next. The and only explicit. way to explicit, ex, explicit, right? <laughs> yeah. The only way to do that, I'm telling you, is for the center right all to unite around completely starting from scratch with the education system. There will still be public schools. And a majority of students will still go to them. They have to be reimagined. I mean, this is time for conservatives to lean not only into Kirk and Burke, but T.S. Eliot. Let's be imaginative about the solutions we have and the institutions that have been around a long time, like Heritage and increasingly TPPF, we're 32 years old, must be imaginative. I'll close with this and say the very last thing that I'm working on at Texas Public Policy Foundation is completely retooling our work on education reform. We've worked on that for 32 years. We've done good work on that. We have good people who've worked on it. We've not gotten it done. Now is the time to get it done. And even if I were not going to Heritage, I would be looking to the, the person who would be leading Heritage to help us at TPPF form this huge coalition, taking advantage of what parents in their hearts know, which is that schools have failed them. They failed their children. And by extension, they failed this great country. Who would have thought 
in 2021 that school board meetings would become a great flashpoint in the American body politic. It's insane or that the U.S. Attorney General should be a relevant conversation about that. (laughs) This is the last question I'll ask you on this point. I agree the education system has collapsed and the past year, just if anyone had any doubt, uh, there's no doubt anymore that radical ideologues are in charge of our school boards, are producing our teachers, um, are creating our curriculums. Um, how do you, looking at sort of the, that landscape of the educational establishment, let's call them, the, the uh, you know, the National um, uh, Association of School Boards, uh, you know, asking president to sick the FBI on angry parents at school board meetings. It's insane. It is. Um, but obviously it's evidence of complete rot in the education establishment uh, in our country. The behavior of the teachers unions over the course of the pandemic, abominable. Um, the, the kinds of critical race theory and 1619 projects type stuff that we see coming uh, into the, to the school curricula, not to mention pornographic materials in school libraries. Um, you know, how did we get to the point where, you know, these, these institutions have been completely taken over, not by like, you know, tame Democrats or centrist Democrats, but like the left wing of the, of, of the radical leftist movement has, seems to have completely captured the educational institutions in this country. Um, And maybe that's what you mean when you say we have to start from scratch. Practically, how how does that happen? Yeah, I'll get to the practical very quickly, but say it's happened because we've had this false, this belief in this false notion of a neutral public square. And so that is an excellent segue, I think, I hope, into what I'm about to say. I've lived this, that is to say, both in higher ed and K-12. I've been a leader in both, obviously a student in both, as most people. In higher ed, starting in the 1910s, And then really becoming profound by the 1950s, when this country was at its greatest. The people who were being trained in colleges of education were people who hated this country, who frankly were more passionate about the project of the Soviet Union than they were about the project known as the United States. They then, by the 1970s, had formed most, they had educated most of the professors in this country. And we're now living through our second generation of public school teachers who must be certified in most states to teach by going to a college of education. The reform starts by deleting every college of education, almost every college of education, all but four or five. I'm I'm not exaggerating when I say that. It continues by saying there is no longer requirement that in order to teach in a school, you have to go to those enemies of the state schools. And the third is that we make sure that even in great places like Texas, where we have choked off for the most part, new entrance into into the charter school space that we completely open up those laws so that there's massive competition for those children being in seats. When that happens, this country will be saved, but this country will not be saved unless that happens. You've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm your host, John Davidson, political editor at The Federalist. Our guest today has been Kevin Roberts. He is CEO of the Texas Public Policy Foundation and incoming president of the Heritage Foundation. Until next time, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray.
The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.